Amen. Man, it is really good to sing worship to our Father with you guys. You know, maybe as we sing those songs, you know, he stepped into my Egypt, took me by the hand, and leads me into the promised land. You know, that's the kind of tone that Israel would feel coming out of Egypt, into the book of Numbers, having seen God do these miracles. And maybe you felt that in your life. Like maybe you can remember the moment where you felt like you first understood you needed Jesus Christ as your forgiver and he sets you free. And you say, what a triumph. <laughs> right? Israel knew that triumph. Coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, coming out of bondage, seeing miracles happen. But through the book of Numbers, we've also seen that on their wanderings, they've hit circumstances that don't feel like triumph. They've also felt the tragedy. Sometimes that comes from their own mistakes, from their own complaining, from their own rebellion. And so through the, the first few movements of this book, as they've gone through this wilderness, it has felt like what happened to all those like amazing coming out of Egypt moments as they've moved from tragedy, from triumph to tragedy. And we're picking up in the middle of chapter 20 today because in chapters 20 and 21, we start to begin to see hints that this will be reversed. To move from the tragedy back to the triumph. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I know we took a break from Mother's Day, so you gotta, you got to rewind a little bit in your brain. But the first half of Numbers chapter 20 experienced some of that tragedy. Miriam, Moses' older sister, has died. And Moses and his brother Aaron were told by God that they were not going to come in to the promised land because of their rebellion at the waters of Meribah. And so today, as we finish Numbers chapter 20, we're going to journey with them to see how we continue to move forward in and towards God's promises when we face opposition, when we face disappointment, even when we face tragedy and how God carries us through. So look with me at Numbers chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 14 today. This is right after God has had that whole moment with Moses and Aaron. It says, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh, that's where they were staying, to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. Just, we'll just go right along the king's highway. We will not turn left. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. All right, so for this moment for Israel, is like, it's almost like they can see the promised land. It's so close you can taste it. And it would be a lot faster if we could just, if we could just cut right through Edom. So they send this message, which you'll notice a couple things I highlighted there. First is the king of Edom and your brother Israel. So Israel is actually the name that was given to a man who was originally named Jacob. So Jacob becomes Israel, and then the people of Israel are his ancestors, this people of God. Edom 
comes from a man named Esau. So Edom is the land of Esau, and the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And these guys have had, shall we say, conflict for hundreds of years between Israel and Edom. And the reason for that is because in case you didn't know this, Esau and Jacob are actually brothers, twin brothers. And Esau was born, what, like two minutes earlier? Which technically makes him the older brother. And in their culture, that means that he gets the birthright, he gets the best part of the inheritance. So, one day, Esau is out hunting, as he is wont to do. When he comes back from the hunt, he's so famished, he feels like he's going to starve to death. And he comes upon his little brother, Jacob. Jacob's brewing a big pot of stew, and he says to Esau, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. It's no good to you dead anyway, right? And Esau actually takes this deal. So he eats the stew, and now Jacob owns the birthright. So you can find that story in Genesis chapter 25, and over the next few chapters, you see how many kind of strange and sordid details go beyond just this moment in the lives of these two brothers, so that at the end of their father's life, when Isaac is giving them their blessings, there's a little deception, mom kind of helps out, but ultimately, the greater blessing is given to Jacob. The promises that like a Messiah will come from his family one day. And from then on, they are known as Israel. They are called the chosen people. They are the ones who go into Egypt. They are the ones who are brought out. And meanwhile, Edom is over here thinking, that could have been us. And so even though the brothers had a little bit of like some reconciliation in their own lives, their ancestors have continued to fight about this for generations and for centuries. Which explains why Israel is trying to be so polite. Please, can we pass through your territory? In fact, the form of this request actually takes on a very famous ancient Near East, almost like a form letter. So, for example, you think about when you look at a resume, you know it's a resume right away. They all look the same, even if they have different information on them. That's the kind of form letter this is when you need something from an opposing nation. So Israel's being incredibly careful, incredibly polite, complimenting Edom. And in fact, it even shows up in the Hebrew as a chiasm. So you've heard us use this word chiasm from time to time. It's one of the ways that Hebrew likes to rhyme ideas to help make a point in the text. Specifically with chiasm, building from the outside in to a central point. And so you see in their request how at the beginning and the end, that outer layer focuses on Edom. We are your brother, Israel. And we're at your border, your territory. The next layer in is Israel themselves. The situation they're in, the hardship that's befallen us, and where we are in Kadesh. And then at the center of this whole thing, almost like the main point, it focuses in not on Edom or Israel, but on the Lord. It's the Lord who heard our voice, the Lord who sent the angel, the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt. So I'm saying this as politely as I can, but just remember, the Lord is with us. It's so polite. So how do you think that Edom is going to respond? If you've already read ahead, you know, verse 18 says, Then Edom said to him, 
You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. That is not a form letter. That is not polite, (laughs) right? Like they're saying, please, we're, we're just asking. And Edom comes back with violence. Like this is not happening. So here's one of the things that that we've got to think about here. Like, what happens next? Should they give up? Should they retaliate? Should they reroute? What do we do? Because here's the reality for us. You actually need to expect opposition on the way to the promised land. And let's just own that that's kind of discouraging to hear. Right? Like, I I don't want to hear that. But if you've been a Christ follower for any number of years, you you might know exactly what I'm talking about. Because this is true all the way through Scripture. Like whenever God is on the move, let's just own there's something broken in me already. But there's also an enemy that is working against that. And the good news is that God wins every battle and God keeps every promise. The opposition will never stop God. But if you've been a Christ follower for any number of years, maybe you can think back to that first moment you put your faith in him and you thought, not going to hell, that's pretty good. Going to heaven, I like the sound of that. Should be smooth sailing from here. Has anybody had smooth sailing since then? No hands, guys. (laughs) Maybe out there in internet land, and I don't see any hands. Because here's the reality. We know that we live in a broken world. We know that there are things still broken in us that God is working on in our lives. And so there are times that the tragedy, the disappointment, the discouragement is coming from me, but there's other times where it's outside of me because someone is trying to tempt me, someone is trying to stop me, someone is trying to hold me back from following God to the place that he wants me to go, from following God in obedience, from following God in his standard instead of the world's standard. And we face that opposition. It's been true throughout the Bible. It's been true throughout history. You can think of how how many stories do you read about missionaries who go to a new area and they're bringing the gospel. The message is God loves you so much that he died for you and they're met with violence and martyrdom. It's still happening today around the world. That the message that, hey, I know nobody likes hearing this, but you're a sinner. You have done things wrong. You think they're wrong. God thinks they're really wrong. And he even has some ones you didn't even know about. But here's the good news. God came and died for that so that you could be forgiven and live with him forever. Oh, no, you don't. We're coming out with swords. Like, really? This is a good thing that God is trying to do. Expect opposition on the way to the promised land. Part of what that helps us do is not be so surprised by it. That when we face it, we remember that we are weak, but he is strong. And so the question for Israel then is, how do they respond to this? So look at verse 19. They try one more time to ask. They say, we, the children of Israel, said to him, we will go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. He's basically saying, we promise we won't touch anything. But even if we do, we'll pay for it. Please let us go through your land. Then he, this is the king of Edom, said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. I want you to catch what's happening here. Because as we go on through the book, we're going to see they are continuing forward to the promised land, but they have to take a different path. You see, God had not told them that Edom was part of the promised land. 
At this point in history, God has not told them that Edom needs any judgment. So they have no reason to fight back, to start a battle, to retaliate. And they probably remember from chapter 14 what happens when you try to fight a battle when God is not with you. It it doesn't work out so good. So rather than retaliate, they decide to reroute. But I think what's important about that is that they don't give up. Despite the opposition, they keep moving forward. But it is disappointing. Like, we have to own that. In fact, part of rerouting, you're going to see in some of the chapters to come, they face some other challenges because they're on this path. So we can own that disappointment. We can expect that opposition. Because as the passage continues, they really move from disappointment into tragedy. Check out verse 22. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eliezer his son and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So we saw that in the first half of the chapter, God passed down this consequence for their rebellion. And this this is one of the things that is interesting to me as we go through this verse by verse. The fact that Aaron is being held to account for this rebellion. Because I think if you'd asked me if we were doing like Bible trivia, like we've got some of these old cards, you flip the Bible trivia, it's like, who was Jesus' mom? Mary. That's easy. Come on, give me a hard one. Okay. All right. Who didn't get into the promised land because they rebelled at the waters of Meribah? Moses, come on, give me a hard one. Ah! Moses and Aaron. So as much as we remember striking the rock, remember that God told them it was really an issue of their belief, Moses and Aaron together, that they did not show God as holy before the people. So Aaron is going to die in the wilderness. And so God gives them this instruction to go up the mountain. Imagine what that moment would be like. Uh, Imagine this moment for Moses. Because he and Aaron have been together for decades. This is his older brother. To think that at the beginning of the chapter, he lost his older sister as Miriam died. Imagine what it's like to walk up that mountain with your brother, knowing he will not walk back down. After everything that they've been through together. Because at this point, Aaron is uh, 123 years old. I think he's like three years older than Moses. Moses would be 120. They've had a long time together. And and think about some of those memories. I I mean, think about what this is like for Aaron. Walking up that mountain, knowing that you're walking to your death. What is rolling through his mind? about that failure at Meribah, about the memories of the wilderness, about the memories of Egypt. What was it like for him growing up, watching Moses from afar, seeing his little brother grow up in a palace like a prince and wondering, what's going to come of that? 
Or fast forward, because then Moses disappears into the wilderness for a while, and when he comes back, like imagine you're Aaron when Moses gets back and he says, so I was talking to a burning bush the other day. I promised it was God. And he says, you need to do the talking when we go to Pharaoh. But think about the courage and the faithfulness of Aaron to walk in there with his brother, stand before the king, and announce, let my people go. He was there for miracles. God worked miracles through him in those plagues. Yet it was also Aaron when they first got into the wilderness that when Moses didn't come back down with the Ten Commandments right away, it seems like he's taken a little bit too long. It's Aaron who gathered the gold and made the golden calf. And get this, after he makes the golden calf, God chooses him as the high priest. One of the best examples you see in scripture that we are not called because we're qualified. We're qualified because we're called. God didn't choose Aaron because he was perfect. We'd already seen him fail. And yet how faithful he was. And how many failures he had. Imagine what this is like for Eliezer, Aaron's son, to walk up that mountain with dad, knowing that dad's not coming back down that mountain that the weight of being high priest will be on you when you climb back down. It's a heavy moment. It's a weighty moment. And it's a tragic moment. Not only because death is involved, but also because we see, like we see in the world around us all the time, the consequences, the brokenness of sin. And yet there's also a glimmer of hope here. Because imagine what this is like for the people. How long they've known Aaron and loved Aaron and he's our high priest. How many of them can remember the first time they had to stand in front of Aaron with a sacrifice because of something they did. And it was Aaron who looked them in the eyes and said, it is atoned for. You are forgiven. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's who Aaron was to them. From their perspective, they watch him go up the mountain. They feel like they're losing their high priest. And yet there's some hope here too because God doesn't leave them without a high priest. A high priest comes back down the mountain as well. In fact, if you notice in verses 27 to 29, it says that Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. This is kind of a cool moment because in their culture, the normal amount of time that they would grieve for the loss of a loved one was seven days. So to do this for 30 days was a mark of honor for Aaron. I think that's important for us. 
that the grief part of this matters too. That we need to grieve the tragedy of death and disappointment. And I know that I'm not always good at this. In fact, I think a lot of us aren't because we don't like that feeling. I don't like to think about what Moses and Aaron did. I don't like to think about how it messed stuff up. I don't like to think that after all these years and now Aaron's gone. And what if Eliezer's not as good as him? And I don't, I don't know. I just like I had this thing with Aaron. And we tend to push it down or push it away so that we can try to feel fine. You know, sometimes we self-medicate, you know, whatever it is, because we don't want to feel the grief. That's not a good feeling. And so I love that the people take 30 days. Nothing else is happening while they grieve this thing. And I remember really the first time that I feel like I learned that in my life. A few years ago, um, a friend of ours, Melissa and I have a friend, Katie and Mark. And one day while Mark was driving, he had a, a medical event um, they're still not exactly sure what it was, but he was alone in the car, lost control of the car, had an accident, and died instantly. And he, he was young. I mean, I don't even, might have hit 40. He was kids. He has a son that was 10, a daughter that was 8. And I remember, see, I don't want to remember, but I remember being at the hospital with Katie that night. Because she has to go in the room and say, yes, that's my husband. Her small group was there, and we wept together. But in the days that came, I remember that night so painfully that I, I remember, like I made a conscious choice not to talk about Mark around Katie. Because I didn't want to make that happen again. I didn't want to see her cry again. I didn't want to cry in front of her again. And I remember, literally, I remember where we were standing when she said to me, please don't not talk about Mark anymore. Like how that cut to my heart. She said, I don't want like the last conversations I have about Mark to be about his death. I have to grieve this, but part of that is sharing the memories of him and sharing the good memories of him because that's, that was my husband and I love him. I really took that to heart because it was, it was difficult. But be able to continue to talk that way, like now, now today, it's like, talk about Mark. Tell one of Mark's jokes. Share a story. Instead of having that thing pushed down and becoming something that's afraid or still painful, it becomes something that is healed. Not because we stay in the grief forever, but because we grieve well enough to move through it. And I remember because this was probably seven years ago, something like that. But I remember being at the hospital with her that night. This was back in, in Illinois. And the next day I was speaking here at Horizon as, as a guest speaker. And so you can just imagine like all of this emotion that's like flooded in me. And I'm like, well, I'll just I'll try to remember my notes and I'll try to, and same thing, just trying to push it down so I don't bug people here. They didn't know Mark anyway. Um, and so it's like an hour before anybody else shows up. Like it's just the band, the tech crew, and, and the speakers are here. And I remember, because I was standing right there, and Paul, who's a part of our creative team, who I, who I barely knew at the time, but I, I think the Holy Spirit was putting this on him, because I, maybe, or maybe I wasn't hiding it as good as I thought, but Paul stopped me right there and said, hey man, how are you doing? Is there something that I can pray about for you? And in my head, I'm like, say no. 
And instead I said, actually, here's what happened last night. And so just in that moment with Paul, with another follower of Christ who's trying to be sensitive to the Spirit, who knows that we need to grieve, he grieved with me. He prayed with me. He encouraged me. That was part of my healing. Those things are hard for us, but we have to realize that whether it is pain we're feeling from sin that someone else has done or that we have done, or whether it's just some of the consequences of the broken world we live in, when we see things that hurt, we have to grieve that tragedy well. But we don't stay there, right? We don't stay there because the people were still moving forward to the promised land. God has given them another high priest. He knows they're going to get another leader, Joshua, because he still has a plan and he will still keep his promises. In fact, if you look back in verses 22 to 26, even this moment has this, this piece of sweetness from God because the phrase that it uses to describe Aaron's death is he shall be gathered to his people. Twice it says that. And yes, it's kind of a euphemism for he'll die like his fathers before him and he'll be gathered to them. But this is not used all the time. This phrase is typically reserved for someone of high honor and faithfulness to God in the Old Testament. As one commentator put it, I I love this. I think it's so important for us to get. He said, this shows us that though both Aaron and Moses die outside the promised land because of their sin at Meribah, that is the limit of their punishment. Can you hear that? That although there was a consequence for their actions, although there was something that was lost, it has not removed God's promises from them. That is the limit of their punishment. God still loves Aaron. And in his word, he twice honors Aaron, even in the description of how he's going to go and die. That Moses and Aaron, like us, have failure, but God is the promise keeper, and he still keeps his promises to them. I don't know about you, but that's, Aaron becomes one of my favorite people for that reason. Like, I love the fact that, like, he fails and then he's chosen high priest. Like, well, I'm not going to try to rank, like, where does my stuff compare to, you know, golden calf. But he forgave Aaron. Maybe he forgives me too. He forgave Aaron. Aaron could still serve him. I bet I could still serve him too. You see, that's the layer of hope that is still given to us even in this moment. Because Aaron is the first high priest, which means he's the first example of a high priest dying. But God gives them Eliezer. But you and I know, because we're thousands of years later, Eliezer died too. And after Eliezer, there would be high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest who would die. Which is why we start looking for a better high priest. In fact, if you flip to the New Testament, it describes exactly this thing. And if you were there with us, you probably know right where I'm going. You won't be surprised, but the best place, I'm telling you, like to understand numbers is to flip over to Hebrews. This is what Hebrews chapter 7 says in verse 23, that also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's what just happened to Aaron. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, what he's telling us is that every page of this book is ultimately pointing for Jesus. I love that because it means that 
that I can sit in the moment that they were in, in Numbers 20, and say, how do I process opposition? How do I process grief? How do I keep hope when I face tragedy? And look forward to the one in whom all promises are kept. 1 Corinthians says that every promise God has made is yes in Jesus Christ. Every promise will be kept. And so just in the pages of Numbers, we've seen that Jesus is our Passover. Jesus, of all things, is our red heifer. Jesus is our high priest. The one high priest who lives forever. And next week in Numbers 21... I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to bite my tongue because it's one of my favorites. So here's the thing, though. Like, you don't have to wait till next week. Go read Numbers 21. Then come back next week and we'll process it together. Because everything is pointing to Jesus. That is why we hope in a high priest who triumphs. That he's not stopped by the opposition. He is not stopped by disappointment. He overcame his own tragedy through resurrection. We trust a high priest who triumphs, not only over death, but also over sin. Just a couple chapters earlier, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you see what this means for us? This means that I can't save myself, but I don't have to. And I don't have to rely on a human high priest. There is no one else who can stand before me except for the God who became human to experience everything that you have. So if you felt like you were that Christ follower who that the day you put your faith in him, you just, your plan was to never sin again, but life has been hard. There have been moments of failure. There have been moments where you don't even know what's going on, but the world hurts. You have a high priest who lives forever, who knows exactly what you're going through, who faced every last bit of it and never sinned. And he is the one who says, I have sent you my spirit that you might become more like me. I was talking to somebody this week who's getting baptized here this Saturday, and that's how they described it. Like, I'm getting baptized because I know that Jesus is my savior and I want to be more like him every day. I was like, Oh my goodness, write that down. That's what I want. (laughs) Like, let's do that together. Let's do that. Because then we stand before Jesus. And we don't have to bring a sacrifice because he is the sacrifice. And you look in Jesus' eyes and hear him say, atonement has been made for you. It is forgiven. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you through Jesus Christ, the high priest who triumphs. That's why I love verse by verse. I I love going through it this way because on my own, I have sort of a vague picture of, well, God is supposed to be loving, right? God is love. Um, Then why does life feel this way? But when you dig into the scripture, Instead of the platitudes, you you see real stories of real people revealing exactly who God really is. How he loves you. How he's with you. How he's strong when you're weak. So I want to ask you guys. Do you know why we're here? 
I know, that's like the, one of those big universe questions. So, I mean, in some sense, like, Christ followers everywhere. But specifically here at Horizon. However you are gathered with us today, do you know why we're here? Because I'm going to tell you how we say it here, but I think this is for everybody. I really believe this is for Christ followers everywhere. Because we say that we are here to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. Guys, that is so important. Because if we're not connecting them through the Bible, then what are we connecting them through? My, my emotions? My opinions? That's why we get a God who seems so up and down, because it's actually me. I'm up and down. But this is concrete. This is where we learn about the God who never changes. That when I read these words and I talk to God about these words, I know that I'm holding truth in my hand. But the other part of that is that it's with other people. A community of growing Christ followers. That I don't just say, well, made it out of Egypt. Now what do we do? Stand still till Jesus gets back? Boring. No, let's grow every day to become more like Christ. And let's do it together. A community of growing Christ followers. That's why one of the ways that we do that here at Horizon is through our study groups. And I don't know if you know this. I realize I, I don't probably talk about this as often as I need to, but one of the main things that I'm doing during the week is spending time helping people get into groups and encouraging leaders that are leading study groups. So I know it's easy to think that Chad and I just work one day a week. Chad actually works two. Um, <laughs> he's front row. Is he, we're friends. It's all right. But that's one of the things I'm doing all week long is helping people get connected. And I know it can be a little bit confusing here, and so I want you to understand why. Because when you go on our website, like most places I've been, you go on the website, you click groups, and there's a thousand, and you pick which one fits your schedule. The reason we don't have it that way is because we are so intentional about the way we comfortably connect our friends and neighbors who don't believe in God and are not convinced about this stuff, but they're willing to at least maybe show up, or maybe they'll watch one online, and then Chad says something like, you know what can really help is to get into a group of guys or a group of gals to help you explore. All right, so hold that thought because one of the groups that I'm in, we meet on a Thursday morning and we're going through numbers verse by verse. So now let's say the friend I'm praying about jumps on the website because Chad said something about groups and he says, well, I'd really prefer, morning would be better. I'll just do, I don't know, Thursday, sure, Thursday, sure, fine. He shows up to my numbers group and we all sit around and say things like, man, that's why Jesus is my red heifer. And he says, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm thinking of a real friend of mine. He's come with me to some of the Ken Kington stuff. Like, he will sit politely through that. He will say goodbye to everyone with a smile on his face, and he will never come back. Because he will think, everyone else here must have memorized the Bible, and I don't, this is not what I thought it was, and I don't belong here. That's part of why we don't just list them all out there. But you need to know, they're also not secret. They're not hidden. We're not trying to keep you out of them. In fact, I'm, I'm working on it, but right now, one of the best ways is just, would you just come talk to me? Talk to one of our greeters, one of our ushers. They'll know who to connect you to. John Kirby, Susan Venderbush. Grab us in the hallway because there's something God-given about the fact that when we get together, iron sharpens iron. That's how we grow. And it may be that you join one of the studies that's already happening. A lot of those studies started because friends got together and said, hey, what if the four of us just kind of do numbers together? You guys want to grab coffee this week and talk about what we heard? And I know a couple of moms, a couple of dads, just two friends that can sit down and maybe even just use that pathway that's in the program every week 
One side is your message notes, and the other side is questions about the passage to help you apply it and start digging into the text together. It reminded me of a story. I was surfing YouTube, which is like probably a waste of my time, but somehow I ended up on the Philadelphia Eagles YouTube page. Not an Eagles fan, don't care. But I saw this video of their players on the Eagles page talking about their spiritual lives and talking about how much they've grown together. And so one of those guys was Torrey Smith. And I loved this quote that he shared. He's a two-time Super Bowl champion. I knew he had one with the Eagles. Apparently, he also had one with the Ravens. He said, I went to church often growing up, but it wasn't until my last year of college that I realized I was kind of living off of everyone else's salvation. I wasn't finding things out for myself. I wasn't diving into the Word or exploring that the way I was exploring everything else around me. And he goes on in this video to describe that the biggest component in his personal spiritual growth, like once he realized that, confessed his sin to Christ, became a Christ follower, was group study with other guys. So on that team, they had a night of the week where guys would get together and study the Bible verse by verse. And a second night that week where guys would get together and just pray about their teammates, about their families, about what they'd been studying. He said not only did it help him grow personally, but he said it helped them grow as a community. The unity on the team as well as how they started to serve the other guys on the team and their own community because of what God was doing in their lives. I could tell you dozens of stories just like that right here at Horizon. Because that's what we're here for. And I'll tell you, when you face opposition, when you face tragedy, when you face discouragement, and when you celebrate triumph, you don't want to do it alone. Moses, Aaron, the people, they weren't alone. They were on that journey together. Not only with each other, but even more importantly with God. So together we want to grieve the tragedy, but trust God for the triumph. Can I pray that way for you right now? God, thank you that you are a God who steps into our tragedy, who understands the opposition. Lord, we know that we live in a dark world. Lord, I'm thinking even this morning of, of the article I saw of the shooting in Buffalo yesterday. God, for families that are mourning and people that are hurting, Lord, we know that, that the place we are, we wish those things never happened. We wish it was just smooth sailing, but we know that those things are real and we need a God like you. And so I pray that you would be near to those families, near to those people. We pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And God, that you would rescue us, that you would call people to yourself, that you would show them the joy of forgiveness and deliverance that more and more would start this journey with you. God, that even as we grieve the tragedy, we would be looking forward to the triumph that we celebrate through your kindness, through your forgiveness, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.